Welcome this morning. I want to take you back a quite a long time in the case of some and not so long in the case of others to when you were children reading. Because children read from quite early on in their lives, children read. I want you to look at some of the pictures that are coming up now and see if you can recognize anything that brings this me date you, it may date me, but just look at the various pictures that come. There'll be no prizes, by the way, for those who identify at all. You have to be a bit younger for that one. Doesn't matter what age you are for that one. Going since the early 19th century. Also, the original illustrations by Tennille. Has anybody... Just, just to check there, does anybody actually read The Cat in the Hat? Some of you have, yeah. I, it almost passed me by, I don't know why. This one, of course. We've all recognized something from our earliest days, I guess. There's probably nobody here who's not been familiar with one or, one or, two, one or two of those. Uh, because we're, we're in a world of reading. And we, we are in a world of reading from when we're very young. So what we're talking about when we think about reading... It's the sort of talk I could give to any group, not just a Christian group, at the start. Because reading is so important. And reading is something which everybody needs to do. You're doing it now. You wouldn't really understand quite as much if you were just listening to me as if you had also a visual reading prompt. And we've all learned to read, okay, starting at primary school. So the first thing to say about reading is that it's a very, very good thing. And it's important for us to realize that when we're talking about the whole concept of Christians as reading, because we're no different than anyone else. We, we read and we need to read. It's one of the basic language skills. It's literacy. It's, it's through reading that we learn stuff. Through reading that we gain knowledge. We begin to gain understanding. We saw how the, the different... Uh, children's novels or stories were gradated in terms of what they could manage, what they couldn't manage, what they could understand, where they could go. And that forms our mind. Through reading, we form our minds. If you ever watch University Challenge, you will know that so-and-so says, I am X reading history at this college. Reading is what needs to formation of the mind and understanding. And it expands our experience. And ultimately, it gives us wisdom and it helps us to discover what is true. So reading is not something controversial, I think. In fact, it's the opposite of controversial. It's absolutely central to our lives, to what we are, to human civilization. And literacy is vitally important in, in society. If you look at all these surveys of different countries in the developing world and the developed world and so on, you'll, you'll see one of the, the, the charts they use, one of the statistics they use is the statistic of literacy. What is the percentage of literacy? In our country, it's coming close to 100%. It's not, but it's coming close to it. But in some countries in the world, it's very, very low, and people suffer in their economies, in their societies because of that. For us, it's the basis of all education and employment, and it enables to understand and master language. See, language is so important. I would say that. I teach languages. And it's actually quite difficult. Languages are quite difficult. I don't mean French or German or Chinese, because they are, of course, dif difficult when you start off. 
But all languages are difficult. We've got to understand exactly what language means. And so reading is one of the ways in which we develop that sensitivity to language, to what things mean and how we can mean them. So when we think about literature, as we will in a minute, we see that language and literature are intimately connected. Those who know a language best can read it and can read the literature. If you're just reading an instruction manual for how to dismantle a motorbike engine and so on, that's not that complicated once you've got the technical terms. But if you're reading a difficult piece in literature, you really will get language at a very high level. So reading is so important for our education and for what we do and for how we act and how we are in our employment. So that means that, I don't know, what some of you may come because you're really avid readers, some of you are not convinced, but we all need to be readers. We all need to be readers, therefore, of words, trying to understand words, what they mean, what they say, how they affect us in all sorts of complex ways. And it's not just straightforward like the cat sat on the mat. Straightforward sentence, but language is much more than that. And that's what we're on about when we look at reading in general. So let's imagine that this is not a, a, a class in a, 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 a Christian conference or just an ordinary literature class. This is what, this is what we say. Words are so important, we've got to read words and understand them. But in the same way we read other things, we get meaning and read meaning into what we see. People we see, situations we're in, faces we see. So the concept of reading is actually broader than just reading words on a page. It becomes a metaphor for our understanding of the world. So we read then. What do we, why do we read? Well, I've said it. For understanding knowledge, for self-development. Warren Buffett, not Buffet, by the way, Warren Buffett. Uh, you know who Warren Buffett is. He's the richest man, in, one of the richest men in the world. I think he's probably third at the moment. He's, he has uh, an investment company in the Midwest, and he's one of the most successful investment investors ever. And he says, what's the secret of success? He says, I read 200 books a year. I read fi 500 words a day. And that's where I, I, I base my, my success, because I understand and I know and I read and so forth. He didn't go to university or anything like that. He self-taught, but that's what he said. He got his self-development. That's where he got his understanding for his cultural awareness, his, his, his capacity to know when to invest and so on would come from understanding society and economies. We live in a generation, however, despite all of that, where you're supposed to read and it's a good idea to read and it's important for literacy and all of that, we live in a generation that increasingly does not read irrespective of thinking of literature, but does not read at all. And that is a big issue. It's in schools, those who are teaching in schools, uh, even in, in grammar schools, so on, teaching English and so forth, find it difficult to get children to read beyond what they're absolutely forced to read. It's a big issue. So reading is very important. You may say that's okay for reading in general, but what about imaginative literature? Novels, plays, poetry, and so on. Are they important? Are they a good idea? Now, from a Christian point of view, moving into a Christian context now, have you ever felt guilty about reading novels or plays or going to plays or poetry? You felt, well, maybe I should be doing something more useful. Maybe I should be doing something more spiritual. Uh, this is just an imagine. Imagine this isn't what I should be doing. 
Has anybody felt like that? I don't see anybody. I, I, I see nods and smiles around. We, we feel that. I certainly have felt that. I'm an avid reader. I don't read quite 200 books a year, but maybe quite close to it. And, but I sometimes felt, well, should I not be doing something else? Until I realized a lot of the time I'm just loving about or watching TV or whatever, and I could just be doing that more, more useful. But this is an issue for Christians. Imaginative literature is an issue for Christians. And always has been right from the beginning. In fact, for Western civilization, reading has been an issue for everybody. From thinkers and leaders of opinion, literature and the arts have been a problem. For Christians, first of all, Tertullian, famous quote, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Jerusalem being the world of Christianity, Athens being the world of the secular, of the imaginative, and so on. Plato got rid of the poets. He wanted to get rid of the poets from his republic. There's something negative. There's something dangerous about literature, imaginative literature. And you can see the, the different points on, on the... On the slide there, 17th century, Richard Baxter, very famous Irenic uh, Puritan thinker and writer, thought that literature bewitches the mind. Maybe that's why you, you're feeling guilty. You, you're feeling bewitched. Maybe you've read Harry Potter and you say, oh, I'm in trouble. I've read Harry Potter. I'm going to be uh, hexed or something like that. No. Well, here are some of the reasons why Christians in the past, you could have, I could give a whole lecture on the sort of points that people have made about it, but it's fictional. It tells stories that are not true. It's all made up. It's not real. So that's equated with falsehood. Could I say, by the way, that people who read often think that the people that they're reading about are almost real. The Game of Thrones, which is a series of novels, now a TV series, has got a reality in people's minds which has helped the tourism industry in Northern Ireland and other places as well. So that's debatable. But anyway, uh, the second thing is it feeds the passions because literature engages emotion. And that's, of course, quite true. It, you, you might be working on a mathematics theorem, but you're not getting terribly emotional about it. You might be very cross at yourself for not understanding it, uh, but there's no emotion in the maths. But there are emotions engaged automatically and necessarily when we read imaginative literature, when we read a novel, for instance, we need a poem. And that leads, these passions can be led astray by, to immorality. And also it's not useful doesn't do anything, and Buffett would disagree with that, but that's what has been said. It's not useful, it's a waste of time. The trouble is, in the Bible, when you look to the Bible, rather than these Christian thinkers or secular thinkers like Plato, there is no antipathy to literature. There's no way in the Bible you can say that you should not look at literature. In fact, if you think about Paul's speech at Athens, uh, his, at the Areopagus, Acts 17, he quotes very detailed parts of of Latin literature and Greek literature, which showed he knew it and had studied it and was actually very familiar with it because he could pull out ideas when he needed them just like that. This sure is science. So Christians have always objected to literature. So if you're feeling guilty this morning, I'm here to help you with your guilt. Okay. But of course, it's not just Christians. 
Modern culture and argues against literature and the arts. In the university here and in other universities, it's very difficult to sustain arts and humanities as important against things like the biological sciences and physics and computing science and so forth. People think the important thing is all these other factual or scientific things and not the arts, which is a big mistake. Because our society is governed and our ideas and our movements are governed not by physics or computing, but by the arts and what comes across in the arts. That's where the ideas come from. That's where the ideas are transmitted. So this is a thing which we get in, in universities and colleges, not just in Christian circles, but in other circles as well. Science is the thing. Technology is, is the thing. Don't waste your time going to university and studying English. Go and do computing or business studies. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but not going to that now. All other studies, all other studies are unnecessary, frivolous, a kind of ornament, not important. I want to argue against that to any audience, but particularly to you as a Christian audience. Imaginative literature, what is it? Well, we know what bits and pieces of makeup, imaginative literature. Poetry, by the way, the clock is not right. Uh, it's not a quarter past four, don't worry. Uh, it's actually 20 past four. Anyway, uh, poetry, drama, novel. There are other things as well essays, etc. But those are the broad characters. If you go up to the library, you'll see that's largely how things are worked out there. And what I would say to you is that works of the imagination can enlighten you and me about the world. And they don't have to be written by a Christian for that to happen. Okay? But in literature, in fact, and this has been proven as one of the things I work on, literature is a means of understanding the world. So actually writing about the world, imagining a situation, a plot, or whatever, describing it, putting it on to, into paper, actually helps the writer understand the world, and it also helps the reader to understand the world. And that is something which is really, really basic. And back to us as children, Nobody in Christian circles that I know of objects to children reading The Gruffalo or The Tiger Came to Tea or Naughty or whatever, whatever. They, they automatically tell us a story. Well, children say that, tell a story. And tell it again. Could I have that again? Tell us a story. We, it's, it's natural and we, we not only do it naturally and they just don't like it naturally, but we think it's good for them. A fortiori, all the more case. For us as adults, this does us good. Why? Imagination is very important. Imagination is very important. It's a key faculty. We all, all, all use it all the time in everyday matters. You may, be, you may be sitting there now listening to me and getting a bit bored and saying, I wonder, I wonder where I can get coffee and, and, and sandwiches for lunch. I wonder where it is I can go. And what do you have in your mind? You have a wee, oh, I go out here and I go along here. And you're imagining the, your, your steps till you get to the coffee bar or around to the Bob and Bert's or whatever. All the time we are using imagination. The idea that imagination is something which is extra or new or special is nonsense. 
all our thinking requires us to be imaginative. When we're dreaming, we're imagining stuff. We don't have a reason to control it, but we're imagining all sorts of things. When we're making choices, we say, now this is me doing this, and if I were to do that, and we imagine a situation where this or that might happen, or when we're leading, I was just finished leading a CSSM team, we had to do a risk assessment. What happens if you're leading those children to this place? What do you do? How do what about this thing? What about that? We had to imagine all sorts of scenarios where something might happen. What would we do? That is imagination. So imagination is something which is basic anyway. And it just is taken to a further level in imaginative literature related to how we live. And that is back down to, the, what did I say about the children? Tell us a story. Why don't you tell us a story? Here again. Don't children love stories? Do you not love stories as well? Do I not love stories? Did you hear about so-and-so? And what happened to so-and-so? You'll never believe this. Now that's an old story. But of course a lot of this imaginative literature started off as oral anyway. And was written down later. And a lot of the ancient stuff is, is oral rather than, than written down. Stories help us to understand the world and reveal it. And they reveal things about ourselves, the kind of stories we like, and they have a role to play in helping us understand the world. And that helps us to see our lives. And I think some of us actually see our own lives as stories. We think about what we've done in the past and so on. So when you're talking about literature, which is all that stuff written down rather than spoken or thought, you've got something which is a continuum. It's all linked together. And it's a perfectly natural thing to do. And in fact, it's the spectacularly human thing in all human societies. That's what you get. Not necessarily written down in oral societies, but you get effectively the equivalent of literature. So this is the importance of stories for us. And therefore, I think as Christians, we should recognize that and not feel guilty. And recognize that story is important. In fact, story is important in all sorts of situations, including preaching and teaching and so forth. And why is that indeed, particularly? Why is imaginative literature so important in a way that mathematics or geography or history or modern languages or whatever are not? Well, it's not theoretical. It is not based on a rationality where we try and sit back and think and stratify what we do it is not abstract, it's not philosophical, it's not analytical. It addresses us as people right away. It addresses us as people. So you get a situation like, uh, I don't know, think about David Copfield or some uh, situation like that or Great Expectations. What you get when you read about that is a whole human situation described into which you walk in your mind as if you were there setting up the people as if you were experiencing the emotions that they were and feeling the emotions that they were. It provides us effectively with a range of human experience, which is really quite marvelous, linking us to a kind of universality of human experience. And what is interesting is that books, and this is me onto my, into my own specialism, uh, books get translated. I mean, C.S. Lewis's Narnia has been translated into 30 or 40 languages. Books can be translated into other languages and into other cultures because we're talking about universal uh, human experience. And it comes to us as a lived 
experience. And that's why it's so important. It's a way of living which is greater than our own personal everyday experience. This is what C.S. Lewis says. You can read that. It enlarges our being. We're more than ourselves. We don't see things from our own point of view. We see with other eyes. It admits experiences other than our own. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through the eyes. I will see through the eyes of others. That's a repetition, actually, not twice. It doesn't matter. It makes the point uh, perfectly well. I see through the eyes of others. I don't know what your favorite literature is, but I'm sure if you go back and reread, each time you go back, you will see more. You'll understand more about that situation. Uh, has anyone read uh, the Narnia Tales, for example? Yeah? More than once. Yeah. I've read them quite often. Uh, and every time you go back, you understand more about that life, that experience of that life. Or The Lord of the Rings, which is a very long, what, 1,500 pages and more. But I have read that more than once. And every time you enter into all of that crisis of the ring and you become possibly one of the characters or along as if you're part of the, the, the group or whatever and you, 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 you gain insights in a, in a fantastic way. So I'm using those examples deliberately uh, because you could say, well, realistic literature, things that describe the world around us in a sort of realistic way are, are good, but fantasy is just a lot of nonsense. It's really, really made up. It doesn't exist. These are things that don't exist at all. It couldn't exist. Well, actually, some of these fantastic creations, Narnia or Alice in Wonderland or Middle Earth, can re reflect reality just as much as realism, the sort of realism you get in the 19th century of Charles Dickens or, or uh, Balzac, the French writer. And this provides reality. So that's what we're saying here. This is, a, this is my push for the importance of of literature, that it is something which actually develops and expands our horizons. It gives us new horizons. To try and link it into the title of this conference. It gives us new horizons all the time. Simply because of the nature of it. But, and this is important, it's not just experience, but it's also ideas. And although ideas and literature are not abstract, or usually not. There are some philosophical novels which talk about philosophy in a certain way, but even there, they're, they're made come alive in a practical sense. Things like Sophie's World or Sartre's Nausea, or those sort of books. But they are not abstract in, this, in, in the, the normal sense of sitting down in school. Literature is an expression of ideas about life, of belief. So whatever you read, there is a belief system. There is a worldview behind it. So that's in a sense what we're thinking about today, about the importance of the arts and the fact that the arts in themselves, for what they can do in writing and, and all the different types we're talking about, uh, have value and bring us this expanded experience. But uh, they are value-laden.
directly or and intentionally and unintentionally, the author will convey what he or she thinks. We've used the example of, of Tolkien and we've used the example of Lewis. You could use the example uh, of Dickens again or whomever it might be. But anybody studying that from a, a sort of abstract kind of way and literary criticism sort of thing would be able to point out to you the, the, the values that are behind that. And they're all written in a cultural context where certain values are assumed. So that is where we need to be careful. We'll come back to that. But if I had to say, well, why is reading important? Maybe you're convinced anyway and I'm wasting my time. But why is reading important? Why should you not be guilty? Well, the Bible is a book. The word Bible means book. Biblos is the the Greek for, for book. And reading the Bible, well, it's a book. And if we understand literature, we'll understand the Bible. In fact, the Bible actually has influenced the literature of, our, of, of, of Europe and indeed the world in a phenomenal way. And we see that interface between Bible and book. And in the Bible, when we read it, we read for truth, as we do when we're reading in, in order ways. We are aware of genre, that's different types of writing. And we, because we have read and we understand language, we can actually understand the Bible. Metaphors, similes, and all sorts of that. And in the Bible, we get stories. Because the Bible is a literary book. The Bible is written with the, all of the panoply of capacities that literature has. And uses it. So it would seem strange to rule out literature and only go to the Bible because the one is influenced by the other. And in the Bible we can see stories about characters. In the Bible we have poems. In the Bible we have hymns. In the Bible we have parables. And you have all these forms and genres. Epic stories. Tragedy. Job. Satire. Various kinds. Lyric. Lyric being, where would that be on the Bible? Seminar. Hmm? Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to use that for epithalamium, but it would also do. Yes, lyric would be there, or the, or the, or the sum of the Psalms, or whatever. Uh, proverbs. We know that. Lots of Proverbs, not just in the book of Proverbs. Prophecy. Epistles. Oratory. That's speeches of all kinds. And the Apocalypse, that is, uh, stories about, about the end. All of those all of those forms can be found in other literatures. And our capacity to understand them in the Bible is, is assisted by imaginative literature. But stories are central, as we said. And the Bible itself, and it's important to say this, is the big story. It tells us how, how things are. Uh, Nathan the prophet told a story to David to trap him. So that he'd judge himself about what he'd done with Bathsheba. And we know, of course, that Jesus told stories all the time. In fact, Jesus' ministry was not through sermons, but through stories. Using all of that imagination brings. And the thing about the stories that Jesus used, or that we see in the Bible, is that they're not made up. They're true. So, we're 
the people of the book. We don't see any antipathy to literature in the Bible. And one, one thing we can say is when the King James's Bible uh, was celebrated for its 400th, wasn't it its 400th anniversary? There were books written about how much our English language and forms in English literature had been affected by just the very words that the King James's Bible used. So the Bible has this great effect in general, and it's all part of a literary world where it is the truth in a world which is an imaginative truth as well. And we get lots of biblical themes and motifs in literature, and we'll go back to that in a minute. But anyway, how do we read as Christians then? What does this mean? If, we, if you agree with me that reading is a good thing, and if you shouldn't be guilty with imaginative literature, and if you agree with me that the Bible gives us lots of clues as to what reading is like and helps us and the one helps the other, well then, what should we do? Well, I think it's in the title of what, we're, what I was asked to, to talk about today. We've got to read with a Christian mind. To always have a mind when we read as Christians. And I'm not sure that we're, we always are like that or we always have, have been taught to be like that from where the kind of children who are reading about the Gruffalo or Land the Witch and Ward or whatever. We are the people of the book. Christians, we're the people of the book. That's the most important thing. The truth, the authority of Scripture is the most important thing in our lives. And yet I don't think we, we read the Bible enough. Certainly in this, in this generation, significant Bible study is not common. And we don't read it properly either. That's the first thing. So if you're reading with a Christian mind, what about the Bible? Are we reading the Bible with the kind of mind which understands what I was talking about, about the different types of th ways that the Bible is written, the different issues about how language is used and so on? Are we reading it thoroughly or is it just picking out the odd text here and there which suits what we want to say or suits our particular point of view? So that's the first thing. That's the challenge. Reading with a Christian mind starts with reading the Bible properly, reading the Bible thoroughly, reading the Bible in a way uh, which will gain the most truth. But also we're, we're surrounded, as I said, we live in a world of books. People say, ah, well, it's all computers and social media. No, it's not actually. There are more books being published these days than have ever been published in, in the UK. Hundreds, thousands upon thousands of books being, being published. So we live in a world of books, uh, books which often become films and TV series. But often their inspiration, maybe most of them, are secular rather than Christian. By the way, of all of those children's pieces of literature we looked at at the start, it's interesting how many have been made into films and series, as well as just reading, by the way. So we're living in a world where the written word becomes the, the performed world as well, word as well. But I would suggest that Christians as a whole, you may well be glorious exceptions, I would imagine, haven't learned to read with Christian minds imaginative literature. And there's a danger, I think, in that. Because if we read and allow the book to dictate our understanding, it to be the one that tells us what to think and what the values are, well, then I think we've got a problem because every book, whatever it might be, has its own point of view, its own worldview. And we need to be aware of that. So that's the, the starting point, therefore, of how do we read as a Christian is that we should have read the Bible in a serious way. In other words, 
I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. Feel free to do so if you want to. But uh, how many people have read the Bible through once? And how many people have read the Bible through more than once? Good man. I've done that. But not enough. How many people, when they sit down to read a book of the Bible, read a chapter or four or five verses rather than the whole book? Because I read the Belfast Telegraph every morning for my sins, for their sins, I think. But the amount of words in there are far greater than most of the books of the Bible. How many people read those three? Right, three. And yet when we read, in other contexts, we read through. But we don't read the Bible uh, that way. Uh, so we should start off being steeped in the truths of the Bible. Now it's harder to read Proverbs straight through because Proverbs is not to be read to be split up on bits and pieces. But you know what I mean. Got the idea. And the the, the the key verse which we know very well for this is is Romans twelve one and two. And particularly two, do not be conformed to this world. That's what happens if you let imaginative literature read you. In other words, it dictates the way you think. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that if we go into our reading not from a Christian mind point of view, we will automatically find our values contested. And because it's experiential, uh, because it is something which grabs our emotions and so on, I think that can be something which you've got to be very, very careful about. So reading mind is always Christian. What's true for reading imaginative literature is true for every other activity in which we engage. You, you use that verse for, what, what is the Christian mind? How do I behave in my work? How do I behave in my leisure? All sorts of stuff. So there's nothing special about reading <laughs> except that it's something which we should be guided by God in. And I've put a list of things which I think are, are, are key to how we, uh, how we do anything for God. And it's realizing, first of all, that whatever the, reader, the writer uh, thinks of whatever book we're reading, this is God's world we're reading about, that this person's writing about. They may express a lack of faith in it, but we're reading about God's world. Not only that, but when we're reading, we're reading spiritually with the Holy Spirit indwelling us through Christ. So we need to be reading spiritually. So that, I think, rules out stuff which is clearly uh, negative spiritually. Demonic, for instance. Uh, we're judiciously choosing what we read. We read critically, not as if we were writing essays on it afterwards, <laughs> but be prepared not to like or not to agree with what we read or even to leave something aside. Reading attentively, obviously, reading wisely. But what we're doing there is appreciating the beauty of the art of the writer because that writer has been created by God, made in the image of God, and is reflecting God's world. But we don't have to take it all. When we're listening to politicians uh, on TV, we, we, we do listen to them and we listen carefully. We don't agree with everything they, they say. We might agree with nothing they say quite a lot of the time. But the reading mind should be alert and critical and spiritual. And therefore the Bible is the heart of all our reading. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Reading within a relationship, therefore. If you like, Jesus is always at our elbow when we're reading. Or if you're on a Kindle, well, I suppose you'd still be on your elbow when you're killing. And therefore, it's just an aspect of discipleship. I mean, reading from an understanding of God's truth, of the, the truth of, of salvation uh, and, and no other position. And we need to be Christian readers of everything. So what, that brings us down to the really key point here. What should we read? We'll obviously read the Bible. Should we read helpful Christian literature? Well, I suppose we do, and that that's, uh, goes without saying. Should we read books that are written by Christians? Why not, if they're any good? Uh, should we read stuff for education? Well, you have to if you want to get a degree or you want to get an A-level or something, yeah. Should we read information stuff like newspapers and the internet? Yeah, of course. We wouldn't think of not doing all of those things. But we'd want still in those situations to be reading Christianly. We've still got our Christian heads on. So at no point, I'm saying, when we're reading, should we not have our Christian heads on? Newspapers and the internet, education, whatever, 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 we should have our heads on. And particularly for books written by Christians, not all Christians write stuff which is, is helpful sometimes. It's, it's not helpful. And we've got to have an understanding of the Bible such that we can actually critique some of the stuff that's written by Christians. So what should we read then? Other than those obvious things which are not imaginative literature then. Well, lots of possibilities, but what we can read, and C.S. Lewis is very big about this, but the trouble is some of the time we only read the stuff that is current, published in the 21st century. And that's all right, but we cannot then see that in context unless you read stuff from a little bit further back. That's what the beauty of doing literature at school and so on. You get to read stuff from the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And we therefore aren't chronological snobs. We do not think that where we live now is the best thing ever. People now know everything. We can see that people knew quite a lot in the 17th century and 18th century when we read the stuff from there. So we read classic works which corrects very often secular ideas, worldly ideas, because they were written in times which were more believing than ours. If you like uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, for example. Take one example of the 17th century. So this is what this guy, Leland Reichen, who's a run, written excellent books on, on Christian literature. The great works of the ages awaken the imagination, enrich the mind, and the noblest spirit. We give deep reading. But what we should do is read stuff we enjoy. It's an obvious thing. Read, read things we enjoy. And we all have a good story. And just because the person who has written it is not a Christian doesn't mean we shouldn't read it. Because we talk to people every day who are not Christians and we, we kind of get on quite well with them, I hope. And I'm maybe even friendly with them. So why shouldn't you actually read something by somebody if it's very interesting and it's a good story? I love crime. Uh, sorry, crime writing. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Lots of crime, particularly Nordic noir. Nordic noir. This finished a book by Hawk and Nesser uh, all about the G-file. All fascinating stuff. You get a lot of insight into humanity and morality and stuff in crime. He, and I'm sort of not quite sure whether Hawk and Nessus are Christian or not. Some other writers like Henning Mankell are definitely not. But I, I'm interested in that. I enjoy that. But I'm pretty critical. I've been a bit aware where they're coming from. And I enjoy it, but I don't feel it's, it's anyway uh, knocking me aside. And here are different genres. If you like fantasy, if you like uh, science fiction, if you like crime, uh, if you like romance, chick lit, uh, or whatever. Uh, interesting, by the way, that women read more than men do. Imagine literature, I mean. Quite a lot, actually. I wonder why that is. But it's true that 
if you had a, probably not enough to do a sort of chart here, but I would say that's well over 50% of, 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 of any, any audience would be, of those who, who read more, would be women rather than men. Poetry and stuff. Not, not everybody reads poetry, by the way, it's an unusual thing. But what is it, anything we shouldn't read? Well, I think this is very obvious. If you're coming with a spiritual mind, if you're coming with an, an, a knowledge of the, of the Bible, uh, we just, we, we remember Ephesians 2.8, whatever is good, whether it's pure and so on. Now, there is an issue there. What, how do you define those terms? How do you define what is reasonable and so forth? That's not always straightforward. It's not all obvious. And sometimes a sort of Christian legalism suggests that certain books should not be read or whatever. The Catholic Church used to have its index librorum, its index of books, which were the faithful were never to even let those books pass their, their, their door. And I think it's important for us to realize that there is judgment here, but we should have that as a key. And we should involve self-censorship. How many people in here have read, maybe I'm not asking you to put your hand up, Fifty Shades of Grey? I knew not to read that, actually, right away. Or Fanny Hill, or, or, or all of these sort of things. We know there are certain types of literature which really are off-limits because of, of the kind of world they, they depict and so forth. In the same way, in our discipleship, there are certain places into which we will not go because we do not really associate, except possibly for works of mercy or charity. Also, church-based censorship, we can be involved in that and where we learn from others, reading books, reading clubs and so on with Christians, as we learn from others what is good literature, even though it's not necessarily Christian. And we censor each other. But the whole point is, we don't keep asking, is it useful? If you enjoy it, that's good, because the Lord has given us all things to enjoy. Christ has come that we may have abundant life, so we shouldn't always be looking after our sh- over our shoulder about, uh, about guilt and so on. But for a Christian, this is the other side of it. Imagine literature, because of what I've said, is very useful. It helps us understand the world around us. It helps us to defend the faith, because we know where people are at. Just like watching TV, you can talk to people about what's on TV. We can understand the word as it is. We can actually use it for apologetic purposes. Phil was involved with apologetics. We also about film, where if you understood the film, you could actually see where the young people were at and be able to, to, to sustain that. Uh, for evangelism, testimonies, you, the stories uh, can be linked in. Uh, cultural awareness, uh, we can be up to date, but not everyone, of course, can do that. We all have gifts, and not everyone is into, into literature as well. So the challenges to Christian reading are that we've got to be careful with uh, what we read, what we choose, and make sure that we don't let those ideas uh, undermine us. Uh, indeed, sometimes literature can become a substitute for belief, and the Romantic movement is all about that. Wordsworth and all that stuff, wandering lonely as cloud and all that. Uh, it was, truth could be found in, in literature uh, and not in, not in God. Uh, we can attack Christian belief, ignore it, and we must be on our guard. But uh, I was going to talk about the postmodern channels. Time has gone pretty well, so I'm going to leave that. But postmodernism says that Christianity is not true. It's just a, a set of made-up stories, just like imaginative literature. We're saying that is not true. Uh, it's all stories. Uh, but uh, we are part of cultural wars, and people say that uh, Christianity is merely a myth. It's just a story like other imaginative stories. And that's why when I've said imaginative literature is like the Bible, people say, because it's like the Bible, it was only made up the same way. 
And that's important for it to, to, to think about. Uh, they say that Christian stories have no validity uh, over other stories, and they're just merely myths. But there's, that's just one view. That's a postmodern view. There's another view. There's a very famous critic called Northrop Fry who says, there is only one big story. It's what's called a monomyth. And if you look and analyze literature, as he has done and others have done, you can see that there are a set of plots which are very similar all over the world in all, in all cultures. As if the whole story of what we do read and we do write in my literature comes because God has made the world the way it's done. That's the idea of the monomyth. And the reason why I'm saying it is just to, just to, to finish up with thinking about C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. C.S. Lewis was a rabid atheist. Uh, he said this when he was 16-year-old. God and gods are only myths. They're mythologies like any other. They must man's invention. But he had... He, he, he went at Oxford, he became friendly with Tolkien, and over a period of years, five or six years, he had all sorts of discussions with Tolkien, and he came to faith, and he came to believe in Christ, and to give his life to Christ, because he realized that this big story of the world, which is reflected in literature, is Christ. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with a tremendous difference. It really happened. Pagan stories are God's, a God expressing himself through the minds of poet, using such images as we find out, whereas Christianity is God expressing himself in what we see are real things. So when you read people who are imaginative, imaginative writers, they are using God's world, and they are showing God's world forth. And that's how Lewis came to faith. And I haven't time to go into this. What's, what's your time? You, you are okay for another 10 minutes. Oh, oh, oh right, that's okay. That's sorry about that. Uh, I know I talk fast when I, I, I realize I'm under pressure, so that becomes very difficult to follow. But Tolkien on fantasy, he influenced Lewis, of course, says what the Gospels are like. I don't want to read that out because I have the time that you get the idea here that God created the world and he created the mental world. He created the, the, all that our, our human minds can, can make. Because a poet is uh, someone as a maker, that's the word in Greek. Uh, the Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essences of fairy stories. I like fairy stories, I think they're great. I like cartoons, I'm going to say, because I cartoons. Because they have some real truth, they contain many marvels, artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self contained significance. Among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable catastrophe. And a catastrophe is something bad, a catastrophe is a happy. Catastrophe, if you like, having a big happening. Uh, but this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. The story begins and ends in joy. It has primarily the inner consistency of reality. That story explains all others. That story is not a sub-creation. It is part of creation, but other stories reflect it. So, do you get the point? Imagination is really something which is not arbitrary. Because you make up your stories in God's world. You are dependent and subjugated to God's world when you do it. The story is supreme, it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. 
And for some people, elves are real in their heads and what they tell us about certain things. In fantasy, may actually assist in the multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true. And yet at the last redeemed, they may as like be as unlike the forms you given as man. Finally redeemed, we'd be like and unlike the form that we know. So when we read, we can be fitting in to that world. When we're reading in a, a, circular, a secular world, not a circular world, it might be anyway, uh, we don't just read books by Christians because God has given gifts to others. In the same way, when we go to an art gallery, we don't just check up what, what denomination that writer was from or whether they're Christian or not. We actually look at the art because God has given the capacity to paint. Same way for stories. This is God's world and we can understand and grow by reading all this literature and it's written by those who are made in God's image but we need to keep our wits about it. It's that sort of said before I'm repeating that but it's important. But we need to dialogue with those in the surrounding culture. We need to dialogue with those who are fighting their truth in literature who understand their world through the, the lack of the Game of Thrones or whatever because they're finding their truth in the world which God has made and the sub-creation which God has made, which is themes and ideas which are God's, ultimately. Ideas of sacrifice. Uh, one of the things that was said, uh, I remember giving a, a, a seminar here uh, quite a number of years ago, at least 10 years, 15 years ago, about Harry Potter. Was it Christian to, to, to actually read Harry Potter? Uh, and all of that. Uh, and, of course, I said, well, yeah, it is, actually. Uh, it's because it mentions, uh, in fact, it's a highly moral book. And the very book and the whole plot of all those seven seven novels, and indeed on the one that has just come out, The Cursed Child, the, the, the play, it all depends on the concept of sacrifice and the, and the fight between good and evil and the, and the overcoming of evil by a self-giving of sacrifice. As indeed is the, is the movie Frozen. Let it go, let it go. I'll start singing that. But the same concept of sacrifice is right at the heart of that children's cartoon. These concepts of sacrifice and good and so on aren't put there by the imaginative person. They're there in the world because God is and we are human and made in his image. And it's important therefore to have these capacities to understand that. And atheistic literature around us reflects God's world because it's his. And because we're human and he made us. And whatever even we try to get away from, we're still there. C.S. Lewis talked about the Hound of Heaven. Uh, he said that Chris, uh, atheists should not be too, have got, should, should be very careful about their reading because God has a way of, of, of catching up on you with what you read. So that's the point I'm making about our reading. It is valuable even outside a Christian writer simply because they're, 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 they're writing in God's world with God's tools as sub-creators even, even when they're against them. And there are many examples, many texts, but I'm a specialist in these two authors here, Sartre and Camus. And they are both in two, the, the, these two plays, Les Mousses, the, the Flies, Les Just, the, the Just Men, provided examples of people who give their lives for others in, in, in a sacrifice as Christ figures, even though they're strongly anti-Christian. They, they actually had to create Christ figures to sort out a, a decent plot which was reflecting a mythical plot, actually, in the case of Lewis, which was a, a Greek, Greek myth about Argos and Agamemnon, the killing of Agamemnon. Uh, the, 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 uh, that um, trilogy. Here in those books, 
we see precisely these issues about sacrifice and, and themes which can only be understood in the Christian context. And that's been very helpful to me when I'm doing that. So that's, don't feel guilty about reading anything. It's important to read. Don't think, feel guilty as a Christian about reading the literature of all sorts. Be judicious in what you read and choose. But in the wider sense, it can do good. And it certainly for evangelistic and other purposes in the culture, it can do a great deal of good. And it reflects, as Tolkien suggests, the whole idea of creativity. God has given gifts. That's what the arts are about. Arts are about making poems, poet, the maker. The German word Dichter is, is, is a poet or an artist, and Dichter is to, is to make, make, thick, to make things come out in, in, in real substance, make something substantial. They imagine that the artist can make something substantial, which is really in itself valuable. And so I would finish up with a kind of encouragement if you're creative, if you can write, or if you know people who can write and they're hesitating, that they should start writing, whether it's poetry, a drama, or, or, or novels, or whatever, because we have creativity from God. We're not creating ex nihilo. We're not suddenly formulating these things out of nothing. We are sub-creators, as Tolkien says. We are making things using the material that is, has been given to us by God's world. Uh, and we can use that positively. He's the only original creator, and all these stories reflect many as, as issues that we see in the Bible. So between the Bible and surrounding culture, there is this interface, and we can direct the Bible onto that literature from and to. But we're sub-creation, but common grace enables us, because these people are writing within common grace, to bring them to special grace. And we can exercise the possibilities he has enabled when we read and benefit from what we read, we are part of his creation. But we, if we can create, we can write, we should do so. We should reflect God. We should reflect our understanding in that. So I'd encourage you to do that. And here's a, a list. It's a very arbitrary list. I was going to add to it. I forgot to do that. Of people who are Christians, great Christian writers. There are more. Bunyan, Chesterton, Lewis, Tolkien, Eliot. Yes, Dante, Dorothy Sayers, Charles and John McDonald, Madeleine Langley, Theodore Dostoevsky, Marilyn Robinson. There's a whole host of them. In fact, there are far more Christian writers around than you would think and you could read who might not have necessarily been Bible-believing evangelicals, but who believe broadly in a Christian world and so forth. There are examples of creativity. Just think of the, the effect that Lewis has had with his writing. Well over 100 million books sold. That makes a difference to people, doesn't it? So, be creative if you can. Read if you enjoy it. Don't feel guilty. Enjoy it, but also because you've been reading, because you're in touch with the culture around about, and indeed other cultures, you'll be able to, to help other people. So, that's reading with a Christian mind.